When Ted Turner launched the CNN network in 1980, it was quite a risk. Uh, prior to him launching the network, people primarily consumed the news, uh, either in the evening news, which is, which is about a 30-minute segment, uh, or they would receive it the next day by newspaper. They did not live in a day when the news was consumed 24-7 at our fingertips. It was quite abnormal to be consumed by it. But Ted Turner thought that in starting a network like CNN, uh, that the market would indeed show that the people have interest. Uh, people thought he was crazy. Uh, it was actually quite a big risk. Uh, for the first uh, year or so, he was bleeding tons of money, and the concept was not proven. In fact, uh, creditors began to call in on interest rates that began to double, and uh, he was almost at risk of failing, as many entrepreneurs do. But then in 1981, the president, President Reagan at the time, was, uh, uh, was under fire. He was attempted to be assassinated. Uh, Hinckley tried to assassinate Ronald Reagan, and something changed. While uh, the major news networks cut programming for a moment to deliver the breaking news, only CNN was on the scene. And people were glued. They could not leave the news story. They wanted to know more. Today, nonstop news, it's everywhere. It's at our fingertips. You can find whatever news you want whenever you want it. You can watch any persuasion of news. You have people not only telling you the news, you also have people telling you what to think about the news. News happens faster than we can even understand it. Much of it is mindless and ridiculous, but much of it is still concerned with the affairs of kings and presidents and those that are in authority. 24-7 news, though, reveals something about us. It reveals that we have a deep interest in the nations as they rage. In many ways, we follow the news like a national pastime. It can be enrapturing. We want to know, indeed, what is happening and what does it mean? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for us? In our news just last week, uh, just last weekend, uh, the president of uh, Russia was under attempted coup even while they invade another sovereign nation. Uh, just this week or just in the last few days, the people of our nation have raged to varying degrees at the uh, decisions that have been delivered by our United States Supreme Court. And all of us very likely will be turning our attention more and more to the primary season and the next election cycle. As a people of faith, we know that our salvation will not come from one of the candidates or the political parties that they represent, yet we remain consumed. We remain consumed that we might in some way preserve the blessed life that being citizens of this nation affords us. We remain in the tension between the lives that we live as citizens of this nation, the United States, and the lives that we live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Psalm 2 speaks directly to the heart of this tension. It is a psalm that contrasts the temporary ambitions of earthly kings and the sovereignty of Israel's eternal king. It is a messianic psalm that points through King David to the son who sits on an eternal throne. While kings of the earth revel in their own glory, they plot against Israel's eternal king. And even as they do, they are oblivious to the true dynamics that are at play in the eternal and unseen realm. They fail to see that their days and ambitions vanquish quickly. 
And Jesus is the sovereign king. In him alone, all authority, power, and might belong. Indeed, salvation is found only in Israel's king. Let's read Psalm 2 together. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord has said to me, you are, my, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are those who take refuge in him. We see in verses 1 through 3 that the nations are conspiring and have conspired against Israel's king. The Psalms begin with a rhetorical question. They ask, why do the nations rage or why are the people plotting in vain? Why plot against God if we know that ultimately it will fail? The same could also be said of us. Why sin when we know that ultimately sin leads to death? Nevertheless, regardless of the outcome, the kings of the earth, according to the scriptures, have entrenched themselves in the rebellion and conspire against the Lord's anointed in order to break free of our God's authority. They rage because the craving for autonomy is just too strong. Indeed, freedom to make decisions has been misunderstood as permission to indulge their own selfish desire. Whether it be debauchery or power, whether it be their indulgence or their ambition, they have rejected God and instead They have chosen to delight in themselves rather than to delight in what brings pleasure to God. Out of hundreds of examples, I will use two this morning to help us get a picture of this. One, a biblical one, and another, more modern. King Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's son in Daniel chapter 5. You might remember Nebuchadnezzar because he called on the people to bow down to a nine-story golden statue. He was attempting to bring unity to the people through their worship of this idol. Of course, that didn't quite work when the exiles were there, when there was a faithful few among them. You might remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They chose not to bow down to the idol, instead choosing to honor the Lord their God in heaven. So Nebuchadnezzar threw them into a fire, and God miraculously saved them from the fire, and it got Nebuchadnezzar's attention. And after that account, he begins to praise and to worship God and to say, who is this one that has so delivered these three? 
But there was a limit to his allegiance. And after a prophecy came and he was very confused about the meaning of what the prophecy could be, he uh, sought to understand through the prophet Daniel. Daniel explained the meaning of the illustration, the, the, the meaning of the dream that he was having. And in that prophecy, it was foretold that Nebuchadnezzar would be humbled for a period of seven years. And he would wander like a cattle in the field before God would ultimately restore him. And once Nebuchadnezzar came back to his right mind, he, and then in that place, gave total allegiance to the king, to the king of the heavens and the earth. He gave total allegiance to our God in heaven. And the scriptures say that his power began to grow and that nations far and wide feared him. Nebuchadnezzar, like all kings, ultimately passes and his son Belshazzar enters this story. And Belshazzar, what he does is he forgets everything that his father learned through the humiliation in the fields. Instead, what Belshazzar does is he throws this wild and drunken party. He brings from the temple of God that as the the people of God had brought from the exile, the holy emblems from the temple, and he used those goblets to throw his party. And so he told them to drink the wine and to praise the God of gold and silver and wood and stone and the wealth of the land. But in that very night, something began to happen. Even as they were having a party, there was a hand that began to write on the wall. And Belshazzar was terrified. His face turned white and his knees began to knock. And so he called for one who could come and interpret what it meant. So he brought all of the pagan uh, magicians and all the king's men to come and to help understand what it was saying. And he said that he would give anyone who could help him understand all of the power of the kingdom and the wealth of the kingdom. But no one could understand, and as they came in to make meaning of what was written on the wall, it says that Belshazzar grew even more afraid, even more pale, and his knees even weaker. That's when the queen remembered. Remember that there's a prophet in the land whose name was Daniel. Bring Daniel in. He will be able to help you understand. So as Daniel comes in, Belshazzar says to him, help me understand this. And if if you do, I'll give you the wealth of the kingdom and the power of the kingdom. You will be at my right hand. And Daniel looked at him and said, you can keep it, but I'll tell you what it means. So beginning in verse 18, this is what he tells Belshazzar. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave them, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those that he wanted to spare, he spared. Those that he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those that he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was disposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal, and he lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth, and he sets over them any one that he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven." You have taken the goblets from the temple, brought to you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines, you have drink from them. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see 
and cannot understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all of your ways. Therefore, he has sent this hand that has written this inscription. This inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. And here's what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought them to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And Perez, your kingdom is divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. What's remarkable about this chilling story was that even as this was happening, even as he was throwing this crazy party, uh, Darius, the king of the Medes, had positioned himself right outside the fortress of the city walls. And he dammed their only known uh, access to clean water, and he came in through the waterway system in order to take over the kingdom from Belshazzar. The story is chilling, but here's the thing. Darius' reign is only for a moment as well. He was a pagan king, and like all kings, his days on the earth are numbered. And in our day, there are modern power-hungry leaders like Putin or Xi Jinping, Nicolas Maduro, and sadly, many of the politicians in our own land. But despite no term limits, we know that they will not reign forever. And this is good news for us. A modern example Another one that hits a little bit closer to home is the collective force of our nation rejecting the authority and the design of God. The whole last month has been dedicated to the freedom of sexual expression. From the halls of Congress, the SCOTUS bench, and the White House lawn, over the last several years, political leaders have declared us to be a nation of pride. Unironically, this designation is not followed with the biblical reminder that pride goes before a fall. We've moved from a place of live and let live to celebrate at all costs. And I want you to hear me. It's important that as a people, as a church, we speak both with clarity on these kinds of things, but also compassion. But compassion compels us to love, and love compels us to tell the truth. Brothers and sisters, kings and leaders of the world have set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. They regard the Lord's design as bondage, and they have rejected his provision, and they have cast him off. They have thrown him away. Sadly, like our parents Adam and Eve, though, all of humanity is actually deceived by Satan's overtures for power and authority that all rightly belong to the Lord. We desire self-determination, personal autonomy, and separation from the relationship with our creator God. Like the kings of the earth, all of humanity has rejected Israel's king. The second section here, beginning in verses 4 through 6, we see that the king of Israel mocks their futile rebellion. We see in verse four that the king in the heavens laughs. When powerful men scorn by the Belshazzar or our own political leaders, the Lord is not intimidated. Instead, Psalm two tells us that the king sits in the heavens and laughs. Earlier this weekend, I was sitting with uh, one of our church members and sharing a little bit about Psalm two as they were asking and they were telling me how much comfort they find in these verses. That while the nations rage or while all kinds of craziness is happening on the earth, that our God is in heaven and his response is laughter. Now there is such a kind of thing as a nervous laugh, but this is not that kind of laugh. This laughter is free of fear. This laughter is confident 
and victory. The scriptures go on to say that he will speak to them in his wrath and he will terrify them in his fury. Brothers and sisters, you need to know that rebellion deserves wrath. God promises it. And we can question God's wrath at our own peril. Sometimes God shows a glimpse of his wrath, like in the story of King Belshazzar, but other times he restrains his anger until the day of coming judgment. But make no mistake, our God will not be patient forever. Galatians 6, 7 tells us, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, that he will also reap. It may seem to some like our God has lost control. It may seem to others as if he is unbothered by what's happening all around us. But do not misunderstand the patience of God. If you've rejected him for your own way, the call this morning is to turn to him in faith and obedience. If you've grown hopeless or begun to be yielded to despair, I encourage you this morning to turn to him again in trust. The one seated in Zion will return in judgment. Which brings us to verses 7 through 9 that teach us the king of Israel judges all nations. The verse continues and it says, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In the time of the Psalms, when they were written, David ascends the throne after having conquered the Philistines and Jerusalem. But this Psalm isn't speaking of King David. This psalm is a messianic psalm. These verses point to the only begotten of the Father, the unique one, the son of David, Jesus, who is seated in Zion. Like David ascended to the throne in Jerusalem, Jesus sits on his eternal throne in the new Jerusalem. Like David conquered Goliath with the stone to the head, Jesus crushes the serpent's head when the stone is rolled away, revealing an empty tomb. After death in his flesh, Jesus rises in victory and he destroys the grave. He can laugh because he is the king who only ever achieves victory. We are not dualists. That is to say that we don't believe that there is this unknown ending to a cosmic battle between heaven and hell or good and evil. There's no question in the mind of God and there should be no question for us who wins in the end. Christ only ever succeeds. He does not fail. His victory is forever. And as a reward, the Father has given him the inheritance, the inheritance of the nations, whether by judgment or their praise. Verse eight continues, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Our God will judge the nations of the earth They will reap what they sow. Scriptures reveal this truth from Genesis 11 when the nations were formed in the days of Babel. They reveal this in Matthew 25 with our pastor pastor preached earlier this year in Jesus' discourse on judgment. But they are revealed further in Revelation 19 when the faithful and true one comes upon a white horse with justice to judge and wage war. He will wear white linen, fine and pure, but also a robe, 
and that robed will be drenched in blood. And from his mouth is a sword with which he will strike down the nations. And on his robe it is written that this one who rides on the horse is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. God's wrath is rightly kindled against all unrighteousness. It's kindled against that of wicked kings and it's kindled against that of fallen men and women. Wrath is indeed coming. Justice requires wrath and eternal judgment. Rebellion requires justice. The wicked must be punished. All rebellion against a holy God will be punished. Now this is a concept that we struggle with. We can't understand the salvation of God unless we understand the wrath of God. There's another illustration that helps us to see it. Um, It has to do with the, the movie The Lion King, which is one of my favorite movies. It happens, according to my wife, managed to find its way into the most, most of the times when I teach or preach, which is true. There's such beautiful illustrations. It's a story of succession. It's a story of the circle of life. You have Mufasa, who is king, and you have his young cub son, who is going to be the next king, and he just can't wait to be king. (laughs) There's also a jealous brother, a jealous uncle, who conspires against the king, and he sets up young Simba before assassinating King Mufasa. He successfully assassinates the king, And the hyenas who were told to do his bidding make Simba to be banished. He's banished from the kingdom. He is sent into exile into a faraway desert. And the question is, is there any hope? And you and I, as we watch movies like this, we want Simba to return and set things right. And there was a whole coming of age in the life of Simba, whether or not he could do it. And interestingly, a young lioness is the one who finds that he is still alive, that he is alive. And it's the lioness that beckons him, come back, come back and set things right. And as it happens, he comes and he returns. And there is this great twist of fate for Scar when he dies in the same way that he killed Mufasa, or yeah, in the same way that he killed Mufasa. Simba, having conquered this great victory, he ascends Pride Rock and he announces his succession with a roar. The king of Israel will return to judge all nations and when he does, he will let out a roar of his judgment. Which brings us to the last point from verses 10 through 12. The nations find their salvation in Israel's king. Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And these verses, herein lies a warning and an invitation. And this is the warning. Listen, kings, be wise. Trust the voice of God. Measure reality not with your eyes, but with the word of God. Serve God or perish. But a beautiful, beautiful invitation. Bless the son. 
find refuge in him because he alone will provide the protection that we all need and that we long for. In many ways, this warning and invitation come as a bit of a shock because by all visible standards, there is nothing to fear about Israel. Yes, David has ascended the throne and he has conquered the promised land by the hand of God, but his grandsons, just a short time later, squander away the kingdom. And Israel is a conquered people. They are conquered first by the Babylonians, and as we heard earlier, later by the Persians, and still later in the time of Jesus, they are subservient to Rome. So what is there to fear? But yet God's promise remains. It is not threatened. True eternal salvation is available to all people, but only in him. You know, it feels the same even in our own day. It appears that the wicked flourish and that the righteous suffer. Yet we know that there is only one who is righteous, and indeed he does suffer. But he also rises from the grave victorious over sin and death. All but one have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But blessed be our God and Father. Jesus, his son, is the blessed man of Psalm chapter 1. You might remember from last week, but Pastor Jairus taught us that Jesus is the one who never yields to the temptation of the wicked. He is the one that never ceases to delight in the law of God. He is the one who is able to meditate it on day and night because he alone is the one who never slumbers nor sleeps. He is the true and better Adam in the garden who prospers and flourishes in every way because he is righteous. If we are honest with ourselves, we see that apart from Christ, that we are the sinners of Psalm 1 that Pastor Jared talked about last week. And we have way too much in common with the kings and the rulers of Psalm 2. You and I are not unlike them. We desire autonomy from our creator king. We take counsel with the wicked. We enjoy fellowship with sinners. And we scoff at the righteous. We plot mutiny against the king of Israel. And our way is destined for judgment. But as Paul says in his letters, but yet as were some of you. Because in God's kindness, he offers refuge in the blessed son, King Jesus. Remember, all who are in him, all who take refuge in him are blessed. You need only pay homage to the king. Yield your life to his and receive the protection from the nations that rage, but also protection from the wrath of God that is coming against all unrighteousness. You see, not only was Jesus the righteous one in every way, but he also bore the penalty for our sin. He drank the cup of God's wrath on the cross so that you and I have an alternative to his judgment, that we might be covered by the blood shed for us. You and I ultimately take our refuge in the blood of Jesus, and we do so through our love for him. The Psalms say, kiss the son. This is an invitation for us to love the father by loving his son, Jesus Christ. We love him, we embrace him, we kiss him. 
Wickedness deserves wrath, and Jesus, the righteous one, bears it in our place. Our salvation in him is not merely protection from wicked kings and uncertain times. Our protection from wrath is also found in him. Salvation is in Christ and being covered by his blood. And when Christ pours out all wrath at the end of all things, those who have placed their faith in him will be blessed. Our God is not unduly harsh toward the nations. Our God is loving towards them. The invitation is extended to all. Take refuge in the Son. God's promise from the beginning, God's promise to Abraham endures. Through him, all of the nations will be blessed. Revelation 7, 9 through 10 say, After this I look and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every tribe, from every nation, from all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They are clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cry with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, do not scorn him forever. May the kings of the earth not scorn him forever. The king in Zion is both the refuge for the righteous and the means of executing God's wrath on the earth. Remember verse five. On that day, the king enthroned in Zion will speak and wrath and terrify in fury. But you, don't be caught up. Don't be caught up with sin or its consequences. You, brother, sister, kiss the sun so that he not be angry and you not perish in the way. His wrath is kindled, but blessed are those who take refuge in him. So how can we respond this morning to the preaching of God's word? First, an encouragement. Don't be dismayed as the nations, including our own rage. You know, when we don't watch the news or when we pay attention, uh, we are prone to feel a lot of different kinds of emotions. I don't know if it's anger for you, anxiety, worry, fear. You know, during COVID, I actually turned off the news. I didn't want to watch it. My response was just to check out from it because I found my emotions uh, getting too worked up. But whether you watch it and engage it or whether you participate as a citizen in our great land. See, we have agency as citizens in this land. We get to participate. We are not just under the boot of a ruthless king. You and I are invited as citizens of this wonderful nation to participate. But as you participate, as you vote, as you perhaps pray walk with organizations like Love Life, as you share conversations one with another, as you read the news or consume the news or pay attention to the affairs of what's going on, don't be dismayed. Be a people of confident hope and peace. Remember that the God of heaven who sees it all sits in the heavens and he laughs. Find comfort and confidence in that laughter and engage as a people of peace. Engage as a people of hope. Don't engage with despair but trust in God, which brings us to the second way that we can respond. Trust in the God who will defeat his enemies and bring justice to the earth. We can find some comfort to know the end of all things. 
We know at the end that the Lord will return and he will make things right. You and I can be confident in that and we can trust that God will do it. One day his enemies will pay a price. One day his enemies will be judged. But that day has not yet come. So as you trust in him, trust in his will and his way, that even you, while we, according to the scriptures, were still yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. When we look out and see all kinds of madness and craziness, remember that the invitation is actually still open. It is not closed to them. They can still yet repent and believe. They can still yet turn from wickedness to faith in Christ. So brothers and sisters, as you trust in God to defeat his enemies, let's love our enemies, even as we love ourselves. Let us be gracious in the way that we proclaim the gospel in confident hope to those whose knees knock because of the coming judgment. The third way that we can respond, worship the Son. Find your salvation in Israel's King. For those in the room that have trusted in Jesus and are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have repented of your sin and you have trusted in him. The encouragement is to live yielded daily to this promise of the gospel, to live in worship, to live trusting God, to live remembering that your salvation comes in Israel's king alone. But there may be some, indeed, there are very likely many in the room that have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have gone through the motions, perhaps even for their whole life, or maybe even taken a chance and come to worship with us this morning, having never heard a clear articulation of the gospel. The invitation to you this morning is to worship the Son. It's to trust in Jesus for salvation. Yes, wickedness and sin, in fact, deserves wrath. But Jesus has taken on the wrath of God in the cross. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look up to him on the cross and be saved. Knowing that Christ did not stay dead, but on the third day he rose victorious over sin and death. Brothers and sisters, repent, turn away, leave behind sin, and instead turn to a holy God who loves you and receive the relationship that is yours in him. Lastly, I want to encourage you to join God's global mission to see the nations of the earth worship and obey King Jesus. When I was first growing up at Bayleaf, uh, I accepted or really chose to follow Christ with, with great intentionality as a teenager in that room right up there with one of our church members. And soon after that, I began to go on all kinds of mission trips. I've been to, my first one was to Charleston, South Carolina. Later that summer, I went to Mexico. And before I knew it, I was in Eastern Europe and Germany. And I had been overseas to China. I had been to uh, Africa twice. I've been to Canada. I've been to Eastern Europe. I have loved this church because of its clear call to go to the nations. This morning, I was woken up at 5.30 by our team in Thailand to let me know that they were praying for me this morning. And I so appreciated that encouragement that then we could respond likewise to pray for them as they go. But I want to tell you something. Something actually happened in my life about 11 years ago. 11 years ago, my wife was a bridesmaid in a wedding. And she was 34 weeks pregnant walking down the aisle of this wedding. When I'm sitting in the audience or in the congregation, I have a little bit of a panic attack. Because in my life, I had gone from a person that was completely like independent, on my own, not responsible for a whole lot. And in a short period of time, I was both a husband and a dad. And I was like, man, 
There's a lot of responsibility there. And since those days, I've been more reluctant to go. I have counted the cost a little differently. But I'll tell you, in these recent weeks, I've been so encouraged by God's faithfulness to send. I was so encouraged to be able to receive uh, my brother Pat uh, back from Ethiopia earlier this week and Bobby from Kenya this week. So encouraged that right now we have brothers and sisters that are faithful in Thailand right now. The message of the gospel is for the nation so that all peoples can be blessed. Remember that the Lord is gracious and kind, not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to a saving knowledge of Christ. So brothers and sisters, it's up to us. It's up to us as the commissioned ones of the church to go and to tell people of the coming king and the invitation to have eternal life in him. Brothers and sisters, we have a story to tell. We have a message to proclaim. And that, that message is that salvation is only found in Israel's king. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful, Lord, for your word. We're grateful for the opportunity to gather as a people in the study of your word. And Lord, we are grateful for the truth that lies within it. And we're grateful for the spirit that helps us to see and to respond. Father, I pray in these moments, Lord, that the spirit would be stirring and causing us to respond in whatever way would please you. Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would see again, clearly, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that is found in him. We pray and trust that you'll continue to move in these moments. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for joining us this week at Bayleaf. For more information about Bayleaf Baptist Church, visit our website at bayleaf.org.